Lord, this morning we come to a portion of Scripture where Israel is gathered before her father and they assemble and hear from you. And Lord God, we recognize that that is what we long to happen in this room in Dundee. That as we assemble, as the assembly, as the congregation of your people, as we gather around your throne, uh, we long to hear uh, from the voice of our Heavenly Father. And we believe that this is uh, your means, your chosen way of, of speaking to your church. And so we ask, Lord God, that we would hear uh, from you. We have worshipped you as the powerful God. And so we do ask that we would encounter that, that power today uh, as we hear from you in your holy word from Genesis. Uh, so, Lord God, we pray that you would uh, please have mercy on us. We don't deserve all that we possess in Christ. We deserve none of it. Um, but we ask again for grace, uh, Lord God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you know as, as well as I do, I think, that different ministers like to begin their sermons in different ways. Different ministers like to begin their sermons in different ways. Uh, some ministers love uh, history, don't they? Uh, church history. And so they will often begin their sermon with an illustration. It will be, in the year 1542, and from that uh, point on. Uh, other ministers will begin differently. They will want to get straight down to it, down to business. So they will begin, if you would look to me, with me to verse 1, and get right into the text immediately. Uh, this morning at St. Peter's, I want us to do something a little bit different to that. Uh, this morning, I, I want us to begin by all of us together trying to envisage the scene that we encounter at the beginning of Genesis 49. I, I do believe that it's important that we try to picture what we have here before us in Genesis. So I am going to ask you to do that with me just now. What do you see in your mind's eye if you try to picture Genesis chapter 14? What, what is happening here? Well, we are at a doorway to a large room in ancient Egypt, aren't we? At a doorway, try, walk with me, at a doorway, a large room in, in ancient Egypt. And as we look in to this room, what we see is quite a, a large, significant group of people, and they are gathered around a bed, aren't they? And upon this bed, you have a very elderly man, a frail, frail elderly man who is sitting bolt upright on this bed. Are you with me? And as we look in from this doorway, what happens but two young lads, they push past us on the way out. Who are they? Can we remember from last week? What two lads have already been in that room? That's right. So Ephraim and Manasseh, they push past us on the way out. You get the scene, you get the picture, I'm sure you do. It's not a complicated scene. What I would ask you to do now, though, is change the perspective for a minute. So what I want you to try and do now is to picture the scene through the eyes of that elderly man. So from this bed, what is it that Jacob sees? What does he see? 
you could say to your minister right now, he doesn't see very much because Jacob's eyes are failing. That's fine. But Jacob is able to make out the semicircle of men that are gathered around his bed. Now, who are they? They are a semicircle of his sons. And you may have noticed that they seem to be arranged almost exactly in accordance by their age, with their age. And, and, and why are they here? Partly, the sons are there because they know that their father is about to pass away. So these sons gathered in the semicircle around this bed, they know that these are Jacob's last moments. And what do you, do you think? It's, a, it's something I've already, it's quite a solemn scene, isn't it? It's quite a, a somber picture that we have. I, I want you to appreciate, of course, though, that there is a certain electricity in the air. There's an expectation in the air. You see, what Jacob is about to do from this position on the bed, he is about to utter blessings, issue blessings for his sons. Do you get the idea? So these sons, they're gathered not just because they are wanting to say goodbye to their dad. No, God is about to act. And God is about to speak through their father. And God is about to unveil what is ahead, not just for those 12 men, but for the subsequent generations of these sons. Now, here's the thing. As you and I, as St. Peter's this morning, as we begin to unpack and unfold and wrestle with this text, what I think we're going to see is something similar. So as you and I this morning, we come in here, I think, honestly, God will reveal to us, Christian friends, something of what lies ahead for us. Isn't that exciting? We get to peer from Genesis 49 into the future and what awaits us, the people of God. Okay, there's the scene before us. Um, you're with me, are you, that this is not straightforward. Surely you can see that, maybe even from my perspective. We have got 12 blessings. What are we going to do? Are we going to have a 12-point sermon? Well, we just merge it in with the evening service and just set out our stall to be here all day. But we have this 12-point sermon. No, we will not do that. Do not panic. But what we will try and do is we consider the semicircle. We'll try and group these brothers, group them uh, in various different ways. And so if you've got a copy of Scripture, uh, even if there's young people beside you, you can let them see this chapter of Scripture. You can turn there on your phone or a copy of the Bible, physical copy of the Bible. And the first group we'll think about is this. Let's think about guilt and grace. That's the first grouping, guilt and grace. Okay, so everyone's got the idea. Jacob is on this bed, sitting upright. At the end of his life, he's about to speak to the future, isn't he? So where does he start as you look at it? Well, given the age order, you know, given that they're arranged like this, it's not a surprise to you or to me, is it, that he begins with the eldest son? It's not a surprise. He begins with Reuben, doesn't he? But what does he say? Okay, if we can put it up, verses 3 and 4, you'll see that, or if you look at it on your page, you'll see that things seem to start well, do they, for Reuben? Because what Jacob does is he highlights the status 
that Reuben has had. Who is Reuben? As the eldest, he's the firstborn. So he was the one who stood to receive all the honor and all the privilege and the inheritance. Sounds great, doesn't it? Like things are started well. But no sooner has Jacob mentioned that than from his deathbed, he drops this big hammer blow. Do do you notice verse 4? Jacob reveals that Reuben has actually forfeited this honor. Now think about the consequence to that. It's not just him, but he and his subsequent generations, they've just lost that privileged status. They no longer stand to receive all of that honor, all of that land and inheritance. And you with me? This is significant. What a way to begin. So what do we ask? What do you ask? We're like, well, what, what's going on here? What, is he, what, what has he done? Well, look again. Jacob mentions his own, so the father's bed, the father's couch. Do you see that in the text? Does that not jog your memory? Does, doesn't it? Because what happened in Genesis 35? Come on, we can go back there, can't we? In our minds, at least. Reuben had had that, uh, oh, what will we call it? That sinful liaison. Well, we go there, that's safe enough, isn't it? Uh, he had slept with Bilhah. Who was she? His, his father's wife or concubine? Reuben doing this and bringing like shame and dishonor to, to the family and to his dad. And although, and this is important, although this was like 40 years previously, the consequences are felt here. The, the nature of that historic sin has meant this is why Reuben and his line are demoted and relegated. Okay, you still with me? Yeah, right? And, and, and you can see this is, this is heavy what a way to begin. But from that perspective of, on the bed, if you now move round a little bit in the semicircle and you notice who's next, you notice it's Simeon and Levi, you realize, don't you, okay, it's heavy, but it isn't going to get any lighter anytime soon. Because what do we know about Simeon and Levi? We've talked about this in the sermon series, haven't we? They also are guilty of serious sin. Isn't that right? Genesis 34. Do you remember what had happened? They kind of defy their dad. Simeon and Levi, they go to Shechem and they kill people. And like impetuously, out of anger, they kill scores and scores of people. And if you're alert, you can see, if we look at verses 5 to 7, you can see that that is in view, isn't it? The anger of these sons is, is in view. But the question is, what is their fate? Do you see? So Simeon and Levi, read it with me. These tribes are to be, do you see? Look at the end there. Divided? What's the other thing? Scattered. Divided? Scattered. Uh, I, I wonder what, what you think about that. Does that sound strange? Or maybe right now you're, you're racking your brain, are you, and scanning through Scripture to see, well, did that happen? Did the line of Simeon, did the line of Levi, were, were, were they scattered? Were they divided? Did this come at pass? Surely we know it did. Like from this point here, is it not true, if you know the Old Testament well, is it not true that the line of Simeon seems to almost diminish, almost out of sight, rarely mentioned as we go on, And then, and you'll know this one, 
What happens to the descendants of Levi? What did they become? The Levites. What did they become? Priests. And what happens when we go into Canaan, into the promised land? What happens to those priests? The line of Levi, the Levites, are divided up. They don't get the set piece of land, do they? The Levites are scattered amongst the tribes. Do you see? This here is perfectly later fulfilled. Okay, as we jump from this bed in Egypt, and just now we jump into this hallway here in Dundee, I wonder how you are interpreting these things that we have just considered. Um, Maybe you're thinking like this, as I did initially at the start of the week, that Genesis chapter 49 seems a little bit like that moment you might get in a novel or in a Hollywood film. You'll know the moment, I'm sure you will. It's that moment where there's a family gathered in a lawyer's office, always like an American lawyer's office, and they're there because the will of a deceased family member is about to be read out. You know that sort of moment you can maybe get in films? And then there's this big moment of tension when it's read out that one of the family who's gathered there is getting absolutely nothing. You know, this big bombshell where this person has been cut out of the will. Effectively, they've been cut out of the family. Maybe with Jacob and the sons, with Levi, with with Simeon, with Reuben, we're thinking it's a bit like that, that they're cut out of the family here. If you're thinking like that, I need you to understand nothing could be further from the case. Because come on, people, if you've been here for the sermon series, think back to what we've witnessed in the latter chapters that we've looked at. Hasn't it been marvelous? Okay, these brothers, there's been historic sin, but what have we witnessed in recent chapters? Have we not seen the brothers be changed by grace? This reconciliation with, with Joseph, their change of heart, their regret, their remorse, their repentance, they've been changed. Don't you see? They're not here being excluded. They will go into Canaan, into the promised land. Ah, Revelation 21. Even these guys, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, have their names inscribed on the very gates of heaven. Do you see? Though there is historic sin, and though there are consequences for this, these are men who have known the forgiveness of their God. And maybe it is in St. Peter's this morning that you need to linger long on that. Because I'm asking you, are you a Christian in here, someone in here, who really is troubled by mistakes of the past? Someone in here who's utterly plagued by sin, historic sin, then, yeah, I have to say to you, just with the nature of sin, sometimes we have to live with the consequences of sin right the way through our lives. Sometimes the nature of certain sins, it has to be like that. But understand, if you go to Jesus today, if you bow to the Lord Jesus Christ, what happens? What will we sing later on? If you come to Christ, he will wash away your sin. He will wash away your guilt. He will take it all away. So we see guilt here, Reuben, 
Simeon, Levi, but we see grace. A second thing that we notice here is rule and riches. So we see guilt and grace. Second of all, rule and riches. Now, if you, for a moment, think back to your childhood, for a moment, sometimes it's easier for some of us than, than others, maybe. But if you think back to your childhood, I'm sure you're going to agree with me that the tone of a parent's voice, the tone of a parent's voice, told you a lot about what you were in for. Isn't that right? It's something that I am trying desperately to learn. Failing, but trying to learn. Parents, masters of different tones, weren't they? Do you remember that? So as a kid in Inverness, in the house, if I heard, Andy, you come through here for a moment, please. Yes, right, great. But if I heard, Andy, <laughs> or worse, Andrew, you could come through here for a moment, please. I, I knew, oh, no, panic, panic stations. What have I, I'm in trouble again. Okay, well, at this point in Genesis 49, surely it's the case that from the bed here, there is a, a change of tone, isn't there? Because can you recognize what's happening? As he moves around, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, what happens now? But Jacob looks and he sees who? He sees Judah. Judah. There must be a change of tone. Now, if we put this up on the screen, so if you look at verses 8 to 12, if you look at that, it's immediately evident, isn't it, that it is Reuben's line, sorry, it is Judah's line that is going to replace Reuben's line as the honored tribe. Do we notice that? There's mention here, you'll see it, there's mention of a staff, but more, there's mention of a scepter. So it's the idea that Judah in the future is going to be the one who is reigning. So it's not Reuben, we know that, he's been demoted, but taking his place is Reuben, uh, sorry, is Judah and Judah's line. Now, so we think about that, the question that we have in our minds is, okay, but what will that reign be like? So there's going to be a switch. Judah and his offspring rise to prominence. What will that kingdom be like? Their leadership, what will it be like? I want to do this. I hope you'll walk with me through it. But I just want to point you to four things in the text about Judah's reign. You'll follow me, will you? These four things. Each begins with P. First in the text, notice it will be a line fit for praise. Do you see that in verse 8? Have a look. The brothers, do you notice it focuses on them? The brothers will show Judah homage and, and deference. Um, I think it's worth knowing that that is a play on words. Um, in the original language, Judah, the name, means praise. So what will this rule be like, this reign be like? First thing, the brothers especially will show deference to, to Judah. So there's praise. Second of all, you'll notice the power of this kingdom, the power of this reign. Do you see it? Not only will the enemies be crushed, but what is the image in verse 8? We know it, I think. is the, 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 the image of verse 9. It's the image of a lion. It's a lion here. Isn't that a great image? It's a, a lion, not a lion who is tearing its prey, but a lion who is at rest, but able to devour if this lion is disturbed. So we're wondering, what will this reign be like? Oh, there will be praise, there will be power. Third, 
P if you look at it, is how pervasive this rule will be. Look at the end. Verse 10. You've got this picture of multitudes of people, loads and loads, the nations coming to Judah in order to, to show deference. And then the last one, I love it so much. There is prosperity in this kingdom. Don't you love it if you look at it? Look at verse 11. Look at the images and the metaphors for a moment. <laughs> the idea is that there will be such abundance in this kingdom and under this rule, such abundance that the king can almost be just nonchalant about things because he has so much. It's the idea that you've got, first of all, that he could even tie his donkey to the choicest vines, and there's so much he doesn't have to worry about the donkey eating the grapes. He's got so much. And then it gets to his clothing. Do you see the next one? There's so much. What does he say? Oh, you can just wash my clothes in wine. I have so much, such abundance. What a picture of rule. Don't you agree? Now, the obvious thing to say is that a lot of this has been partially fulfilled in the rule of King David. Now, you know that, don't you? Can you see it? He was this king from the line of Judah. And so many of the nations would come to him and show such deference. But this is what I am desperate for you to know. Yes, David is seen here, but there is another figure. Would you look at verse 10? Look at verse 10. Let's see if we can recognize this figure. Now, verse 10 is just famously difficult to translate one of the reasons that I'm asking you to look at verse 10 is because I really want to know what you've got in front of you. We've all got different Bibles or translations of Bibles. I wonder what you've got in front of you. Have a look at it. So it may say that Judah will reign until tribute comes. Is that what some of you have got? Is that what we've got on the screen, until tribute comes? Some of you will have that Judah will reign until Shiloh comes. That's it's so difficult to translate it. But get this, what nearly all scholars are agreed upon is this, that you have in verse 10 a messianic reference from God. Do you follow the idea? Here is reference to one solitary king. Verse 10, reference to one who will come out of the tribe, the line of Judah, one who will reign, wait for it, eternally, and one who will reign for the benefit of his subjects and his people. And I love, and you will love, what Charles Haddon Spurgeon says about verse 10. Make sure you get this. Spurgeon says that though Jacob from his bed cannot see well, in verse 10, Jacob can still look ahead to the coming of Christ. Do you see it in verse 10? Though he cannot see well, his eyes are failing. In verse 10, until Shiloh comes, until tribute comes, he can still see ahead to the coming of Jesus Christ. And this morning in St. Peter's, in light of that, is it not tremendous to think and recognize what God is revealing about Christ's coming reign from this chapter of Scripture? Because, friends, Christ is coming. He will consummate his kingdom what will that mean for you? What will it mean for me? What will we see on that day? Think about it. There will be praise. 
Well, they're not. Not just all knees bowing, not just every tongue confessing. Will there not be special heartfelt praise from, from you? From me, do you see the brothers will praise the king on that day? And there will on that day be this display of power. The enemies of that king will be crushed. And then the pervasiveness of this reign. I wonder how you interpret that. Do you think, oh, the pervasiveness of all of the children of God praising that king? That's true, but it is more than that. You understand, don't you, that all of the heavens and all of the earth and everything in it will praise in that moment the king. From the trees to the seas, everything will praise the risen king, the risen Christ. And then what was the last one? Oh, the prosperity of the reign. Are you looking forward to the moment you see Christ? Consider in that moment, it is you and me who will enjoy the abundance of the new heavens and the new earth all under his sovereign rule. We turn to Genesis 49, but what does God push us to do but worship Jesus Christ? He is the king. He is the lion from the tribe of Judah. So we see guilt and we see grace. We see rule and riches. Thirdly, though, we see snakes and we see sovereignty. Snakes and sovereignty. <coughs> I, I never feel like this. I do right now. I feel as though I can read your minds. Just for a moment. Not really. But I'm going to have a good stab in the, the dark at this, okay? Here's what I, I, I'm going to, you know, this is what I reckon is happening. You're looking, sitting there thinking, Andy, come on, man. We've got 12 brothers and you've covered four. <laughs> and so like my youngest daughter in the back seat of the car, every time I'm driving, you're maybe thinking, I'm shouting out or wanting to shout out, speed up, man. Speed up, okay? Four out of 12. Well, I hear you. I do, absolutely. And so let us be really ambitious. Here, let us, in a few words, try and cover six of these brothers. But I'm going to need your help for it. So I'm going to need you to follow through the text. If we're going to rattle through six brothers, you need to follow through in each each of these with me. So if we can put it up on the screen, you'll probably need binoculars for it. No, it's okay. It's not too bad. Uh, 13 to 21. So what do we have? Will you follow? Will we look at these? Okay, what do we... Well, yes, we've got Zebulun. So Jacob prophesies that they will become, when they get into in Canaan, they'll become a seafaring nation. Okay, we have Zebulun. Then, who do we have but Issachar? Can you look at the end of verse 15? It's a bit peculiar, isn't it? Though Issachar is seen as being a strong tribe, they seem to exchange, it's a prophecy, an oracle, that they will exchange land for, for slavery. Isn't it strange? It's perhaps the idea that when they get into Canaan, that because Israel does not purge the land completely from her enemies, that Issachar has repercussions, that Issachar perhaps has to enter servitude for a time. That's fine. Zebulun, Issachar, you still with me? Look at Dan. Isn't it interesting to see what's said about Dan in verse 17? What's the image this time? A serpent. 
Now, we are used to thinking about that as a negative, for obvious reasons, a negative image. Not here, I don't think. So it's the image that a snake, a serpent, one, though small, can destroy something big, a horse. And uh, I wonder, does anyone get the reference? What's Jacob looking ahead to? Can I dare to suggest maybe it's the story of Samson? Is it not? A Danite, one who, though one person, is able to destroy all of the Philistines? Then you get, come on, follow me, then you get to Gad. And it's more clever than it looks because four of the words that are used there are word plays. They all sound like the word or the name Gad. And Gad is portrayed as this sort of frontier people in Canaan, one who's going to be on the edge, you know, protecting the other tribes. Then you've got Asher, more prosperity. What's the last one? What's the last one? We get to Naphtali. I I want to ask you, uh, Christian friends, have you noticed the animals? Uh, In France, one morning, I took uh, the kids around this tiny little farm zoo. It was a wee bit pathetic in some ways, but there was a few animals, and we wandered around these. But in some senses, is it not a little bit like that here? Did you notice the animals? Judah, lion, Issachar, a donkey, Dan's a snake, there's mention of a horse. (laughs) Benjamin will be a wolf. What is Naphtali, verse 21? Perhaps, I think, to reflect how long this tribe took to settle down in the land, Naphtali is portrayed as a doe, as a deer. Now, we rattle through those six. I, I have two questions for you. First is this, what strikes you as the common denominator for these six sons and these six oracles and prophecies? What would you say to me if I stopped you at the door and asked you, What is the common denominator with these sons? You might say to me, oh, Andy, do we not see in all of these something of the sovereignty of God and the foreordination of God? Don't we see that? I mean, think about it. Jacob is able to prophesy with what we now know to be great accuracy about the the future. Isn't it amazing? Do we not see something of the fact that God, as we've said before, God not only knows the future, God maps out the future. You might say that to me. But I think we can add to it. Here's the second question I want to ask you. It's this. Friends. (laughs) Christian friends. What are all of these oracles about every single one of these prophecies are about one subject what is it one word Canaan is that not an incredible thing that Jacob here is able to issue prophecies and blessings that are not about 20 years in the future not about 50 years in the future but about 400 years in the future. And they are all prophecies about what will happen to God's people when they enter the promised land. And I think for us as a congregation, some of us perhaps struggling for assurance, some of us really struggling in the Christian life, struggling to get from one day to the next, 
I think that should be of infinite encouragement to you. Because what is ahead of us? Do you know, honestly, as a Christian, we can say, largely, we do not know. Isn't it the case that Scripture tells us very, very little about the promised land? Scripture tells us very, very little about heaven, does it? Why is that? Perhaps it is, as Paul makes clear, that our hearts cannot even conceive. (laughs) It's just almost too much for us to bear. That's why we're not told about heaven. But what is it, Christian friends, we can know? Think about Genesis 49. What can we know? Like here, God has foreordained whatsoever will come to pass for you in glory. Whatsoever will come to pass is already mapped out by God. Isn't that beautiful? We don't know what's going to happen in heaven. We don't know what it's like. But God has already decreed it for you. God has already determined some of the joys you are going to know in Canaan. He's already determined the the intense periods of worship of Christ Jesus you are going to know. That's already decreed. That's determined. The moments that you recognize people in heaven and you gather with that Christian brother and sister, perhaps already long gone, and you gather with them and you look to the Lamb and you lift up your voice with that Christian brother and that Christian sister, and you praise Jesus, the one who's on the throne, that moment is decreed. It's already set out and set out for us by a loving God. And then the last thing that we see here, we see guilt and grace, we see uh, rule and riches, we see snakes and sovereignty, and just in closing, we see bows, not the bow, but the bow, we see bows and blessings. Um, One thing that I have said already in the sermon series that has surprised me about the the latter uh, chapters of Genesis is just how emotional they have been or how much emotion we've seen. Do do you remember that we've noticed that? Uh, I think I said that it was clear that these people are not Scottish Highlanders that were were studying. Um, There's a lot of cuddling There's instances where they kiss each other and they fall on each other's necks. There's a lot of emotion that we've seen time and time again in this family, isn't there? Isn't there? I, because of that, simply cannot believe that as Jacob, and he is about to die, and he works his way right round this semicircle and he gets to the end, because of who they are and what they're like, I cannot believe as we end that there would have been a dry eye in the house. There must have been tears there. Because what happens is he gets round to the end. He sees Benjamin. Yeah, he sees Benjamin. He loves Benjamin. Who else does he see? Oh. Just in his last moments, He sees him and he looks and he sees his favored son. And Jacob with failing eyes is yet again able to look at Joseph. Now, what does he say to Joseph? If you have a look at the text, if we can put it up, 22 to 26. Come on, everybody can see the repetition. 
When Will read this out, did it not stand out to you? Like there's a term here that is repeated. It's actually probably the main term of the whole of the book of Genesis, but it's a term that's mentioned here six times. Everyone's got it, have you? Do you see the term? Blessing. Blessed six times. Blessed. So, so, so Joseph, now but, but wait. Joseph and his descendants, let's not forget that. His line, his descendants, they are promised here by his dying father. They are promised blessing upon blessing. Do you notice the nature of it? They will be fruitful beyond belief. Not just Joseph, but the descendants. There will be children, and there will be children who are nursed well, and there will be land, and there will be rain for them. There's blessing for this tribe and this land. But how how is it that the blessing comes? I think it's key. Do you notice if you scan the text that time and time again, different names for God are mentioned here? Did you notice and pick up on that? Do you see them? Credit is given to the mighty one of Jacob and then the stone of Israel and the almighty and, and, and so on. But what is it that this God has done? What has God brought Joseph through? Do you see in verse 23? The crux of the matter, we read that archers have attacked Joseph. They have shot at him. I wonder if you can recognize what Jacob is doing as he just, he's just about to die. He looks back. He rehearses Joseph's story. And he recalls that for blessing to come to his offspring and descendants... Joseph has had to endure such suffering. Jacob the father looks and sees that God has sustained the favored son as he has been envied and he's been hated and he's been betrayed and mistreated and he's been suffered and he's been thrown into a pit. Do you see the idea here in this blessing? It's the idea of abundant blessing, but a blessing that's such a cost. And if you're with me just now, is that not the most fitting way for us to end? Because look at us today. We are able to rejoice in joy that is coming to us in Jesus Christ. Who are you? If you are not a spiritual descendant of the favored son, the beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, But today, right now, as we come to the table, what must we never forget? We must remember the cost that the favored son has endured for us. And is it not the case that this is true of Jesus? That for you, for me, he has been envied. He has suffered. He has been betrayed. And before he was thrown into the pit of his tomb, what happened at Calvary? What happened at Golgotha? But he endured the archer's attack. All, all for us, all for his bride, all for the church. Friends, we must just now go to the table and we must remember and we must praise God that he, the mighty one of Jacob, has sustained the favored son and all that we, his descendants, might be blessed in him. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray.
Oh Lord, we come to you and we praise you for this uh, chapter of Scripture. Uh, we thank you for these uh, prophecies that uh, have been issued to these sons. We thank you, Lord God, that these things here, they reinforce the trust and faith that we can have in your divine foreordination, your planning, your power, your majesty. But we thank you that even in Genesis 49, we can look and we can see your goodness. Joseph, as you point us to the favored son and the pain he endured, but also with Judah, we see here the risen king, the one who is deserving of all praise. Lord God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.